Welcome to the last podcast episode of International Voices in 2020. I'm your host and moderator, Udo Fluck, and I have the honor to oversee the Office of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula. This is the 11th podcast this year. We started in February. To listen to the previous 10 podcasts, please visit artsmissoula.org. Click on Global and Cultural Affairs and visit Radio and Podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail 1033. For the last podcast in 2020, I would like to welcome Dr. Ulrich Kamp as my guest. He is an international voice, born, raised, and educated in Germany, Ulrich received his Master's of Science at the Freie Universität in Berlin and his PhD from the Technische Universität in Berlin in geomorphology. Ulrich has held academic positions and fellowships in Germany, Mongolia, and the United States. He has done research in Algeria, India, Jordan, Lesotho, Mongolia, Pakistan, Peru, South Africa, and Venezuela. He taught at the University of Montana's Department of Geography from 2005 to 2018 before accepting a research and teaching position at the University of Michigan in Dearborn, where he currently is Professor of Earth and Environment and Chair of the Environmental Studies Program in the Department of Natural Sciences. He is a glaciologist with an interest in environmental studies and climate change. Climate change is one of the defining challenges of the 21st century, along with global population, poverty alleviation, environmental degradation, and global security. The problem is that climate change is no longer just a scientific concern, but encompasses economics, sociology, geopolitics, national and local politics, law, health, societies, and cultures, just to name a few. My conversation today has the focus climate change and its impact on societies and cultures. And so without any further ado, let's jump right in. Ulrich, taking into consideration where we live, listeners in Missoula and surrounding area are familiar with glaciers, but I'm not sure if many people know what a glaciologist does. Can you please define for us what a glaciologist is and does? Yeah, Udo, thanks for having me. So when we look at the term glaciology, so it literally means uh, the study of ice. So um, a glacier is a larger mass of snow and ice that moves uh, downhill under the influence of gravity. So the gravity pulls the ice uh, mass down the hill. And in that moment, by definition, we would uh, talk about a glacier. So um, glaciology, that's, that's my field, right? It's a part of uh, geosciences. Right. It is uh, interdisciplinary in nature. And uh, so we combine other fields um, to study glaciers like um, geology that I also studied as a student, um, geochemistry, uh, meteorology, climatology, and then my, my specialty, geomorphology. So I'm actually a glacial geomorphologist. I'm interested in glacial landforms and landscapes. And of course, you know uh, very well Glacier National Park, right next door. Right. So that's the, the best example for uh, a glacial uh, landscape. And, and today, glaciology is also concerned with um, the impact of glacial changes and then related changes in, for example, available meltwater you know, on local communities right. and, and even regional societies. So, okay. uh, so a glaciologist, you know, what I'm also are, is a scientist who studies within, you know, generally ice, you know, particularly glaciers. And uh, I use field methods 
and remote sensing methods. So that would be the, the use of satellite data to um, analyze these landscapes. So the field methods, um, so when I, when I travel and go into the field, they would include, uh, for example, retrieving ice cores from, from boreholes. Um, so we can, we can really read the ice layers uh, like a history book, right? Because every winter, again, it snows, right? And it right. all piles up and then you have these thin layers and that it's like pages in a history book and you can read in you know, that, that book. So then we can learn about the ice composition, for example, about its density, about its age, we can date it. Um, and the deepest ice core records uh, are actually from Antarctica in Greenland. And they are, um, I think, up to three kilometers deep. So what is it? It would be some, a little bit over two miles. The oldest ice core record is from Antarctica, and it dates back at least 800,000 years. So we can read into the history of our atmosphere, you know, by looking at the composition, the chemical composition um, in the ice that is 800,000 years old and reconstruct how the atmosphere looked like in those days. And the carbon dioxide concentrations, for example, have never been um, as high as they are today for the last probably 1 million years. Right. And then I also use um, satellite data. Uh, that's actually my main um, field. And uh, we, for example, can identify, you know, the glacier's velocity. So how fast is the glacier moving down uh, the valley? That gives us an idea about um, the budget of the glacier. Right. Or we can um, identify, you know, under the impact of climate change, the glacier is melting. And then we can identify nowadays uh, meltwater lakes on top of the surface of the glacier. This is really helpful, uh, Ulrich, and, and I appreciate the definition of the field and what the person actually does. And I would like to, before we get deeper into the material, um, it, I think it would be helpful to have some clarity about some basic terminology, if you don't mind. Um, mm -hmm. What's the difference between climate change and global warming? Uh -huh. So, yeah, that's a really good question because it's, uh, I think the terminology is uh, somewhat confusing and sometimes uh, used in, uh, in the wrong way. Right. Particularly in the mainstream media. So, so first, I think it's necessary to um, understand that uh, climate is always changing and it always changed in the past when we go back and look at the four and a half billion years of Earth history. Uh, the climate always changed. So that is what we call natural climate change. Right. And it will, it will also change in the future. So what, when we use the term climate change today in science, in the papers that we write, and also in the media, um, we are referring to a change of the climate that is uh, an anomaly uh, from the natural variations. So what that means is it's actually on top of the natural climate change, there is a human triggered climate change. So the right. human impact right. from, let's say, uh, the burning of fossil fuels, from large scale industrialized agriculture, and they all release you know, large quantities of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Right. Um, but important now, um, the, the term climate change goes beyond climate itself. So it refers to all current environmental changes that are all a consequence of human-triggered climate change. So it's not one thing, it's a sum of many things. Exactly, exactly. So it's not only the climate, so right. all the environmental changes. So for example, um, you know what I'm concerned with, you know, the accelerated uh, melting of mountain glaciers, you know, or the melting of the ice shields on Antarctica and Greenland, or um, sea level rise, or the shift of agricultural zones, um, earlier blooming uh, times, and so forth. So all of this is part of climate change science. So now global warming, that is pretty simple. You know, that's a part of climate change, and it focuses um, on the increase of um, the average air temperature. So we could, say that, we could say the two are connected, but they're not the same. 
Exactly. So climate change is much larger. It's an entire field okay. that we study, and the global warming is simply looking at the temperature records. Okay. So, so then my next question is, in establishing this base here, do scientists agree on climate change? Well, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a, also a very important one that I often discuss with my students. Um, so that this is very clear. So, so more or less all scientists globally um, are convinced that, that human-triggered climate change is happening. I cannot even think about any of my colleagues uh, anywhere on the globe who would question that uh, this human-triggered climate change is, is going on. So wh why is that? Because, you know, scientists are not believers. So science is not a religion, right? So science is about knowledge. And uh, so what we do as scientists, we apply the so-called scientific method. So first, in the beginning, you have a hypothesis. So, for example, you know, uh, I could have a question, why is the sky blue? And then to that question, I already have an answer that would be the sky is blue because someone painted it blue. Or another hypothesis would be because particularly the short wave radiation and the blue light of the visible uh, part of the light is scattered uh, in the atmosphere into all directions and that makes the sky blue. That would be my hypothesis, the potential answer to the question. Right. So now we have to test it. We run experiments, you know, we go out into the real world and we observe, for example, temperature increase. Um, and then, you know, we collect data. So these are the scientific facts, no? not alternative facts, scientific right. facts. And we analyze them and interpret them. And then either our results and conclusions support the hypothesis or dismiss the hypothesis. And as scientists, you know, we are not really interested which of them is really uh, correct. Important is that we find one of these two answers. Right. Um, if many of these experiments and tests, and then particularly in my field worldwide, you know, many research groups work on climate change, if hundreds and thousands of uh, results and conclusions show that, um, climate change is real. So in that moment, it becomes a um, theory. And then of course, we also look into the future. So we run um, sophisticated computer simulation, you know, and based on what we know from the past and today, we feed our complicated uh, algorithms, you know, our softwares and uh, yeah, look into the future. So, Important is that so climate change science is concerned with the past. So it's really based on analysis of collecting facts and, and then the present. So what's going on today? Right. And you only have to observe ocean temperature, right. right? It's measured. Right. You know, and then we look into the future. So for example, um, so we observed that in the last, um, well, almost 150 years. So uh, since the, Industrial Revolution started, more or less, uh, at least in the United States. You know, there was an increase of global average temperature of one degree Celsius. So now you might, must tell me, well, I don't even feel, you know, if it's outside, if it's 20 or 21 degree, I don't, I don't feel the difference. Right. So this is the average temperature of the entire Earth atmosphere. And one degree from what we know in the past in only in only 150 years so that's a lot so we could say that um, temperature is uh, rising rapidly today and i think we had the last top five hottest years right. ever right. ever observed right by scientists um, from 2015 to 2019 so actually right. the last five years were the hottest uh, on the planet uh, ever when now, you look at it, yeah please. this measuring yeah, uh, Ulrich, uh, takes place, of course, um, on Earth. But you also mentioned earlier that you are working with satellites to track this. So, so what does NASA uh, has to do with climate change? Yeah. So, uh, you know, NASA uh, mainly monitors climate change from space, right? It's our space right. agency. 
is also, by the way, an important funder of climate change uh, research. So any political decisions in Washington uh, would have a huge impact also on um, you know, how much funding is available and am I able to do my research, right? I need money to do that. Right. So, and by the way, and uh, NASA is also the largest employer of climate uh, scientists uh, worldwide. So it's, it's really um, the, the world leader when it comes to, um, you know, observing our, our atmosphere and uh, land surface from space. So it also has a fantastic webpage, you know, NASA Global Climate Change. Maybe the audience might, might go to uh, and check it out. Sure. With lots of information for non-experts. Um, it also offers educational tools and collaborates with uh, U.S. and international agencies to attack climate change with full force. So we are looking, um, we're collecting data again from the atmosphere and then from land cover uh, from the ocean. We measured ocean temperature with satellites. And we have now records that uh, in some cases go back to the early 70s, sometimes even the 60s. So there's a, there's a strong record of, again, very important observation. This is hard fact data right. that we can analyze. And uh, of course, the satellites are becoming more and more sophisticated. Right. Uh, nowadays, and with some satellites, you can almost read uh, your newspaper, right, right, when you're in your backyard. <laughs> um, I, I could read the book, right, that you are interested in from space, uh, more or less. So we have really a wonderful uh, database available. And again, um, unfortunately, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of the data tells us that story of uh, rapid climate change that is going on right now, um, I would think that particularly uh, when one looks at uh, glacier movement and um, you were talking about this um, when we started our conversation today, that having, um, having a view from space must help tremendously uh, when looking at glacial movement because you couldn't do it obviously standing next to the glacier so much but you can do it really well when you look at it from top. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So it, it is possible also in the field. And of course, in the old days, uh, scientists had only that option. Nowadays, we still do that. Right. And some reference glaciers around the world, because we still assume that the field measurements, so us being at a glacier and measuring, that it comes with a pretty high accuracy. And then we use these reference glaciers, you know, to compare them with the satellite analysis. Right. And the better these results match, right, the, the more certain we are that our methodology by looking at satellite data uh, works. So we could go into the field, you know, and put some markers on a glacier. For example, it's pretty simple. You, um, you know, you spray paint a boulder that is uh, laying at the surface, on the surface of the glacier, you know, and you mark it and you take the exact location with the GPS. And then you come back the other year and the whole glacier moved down valley and with it, of course, the boulder and the right. boulder moved, you know, 50 meters down valley. Right. So that would be a simple field method that you and I could do in Glacier National Park. Sure. And then you compare that with satellite data. But of course, so... Um, so nowadays, and we have, we have at least over 100,000 glaciers worldwide, uh, of course, it would be impossible to go into the field, right, and visit them. Right. So now we have international programs that are concerned with um, analyzing vast amounts of, of satellite data. Now, this is fascinating, Ulrich, and, and just listening to you, I have to wonder, at what age did you know that you wanted to research glaciers? <laughs> glaciers. As some people think, why do you look at ice, right? Um, <laughs> how did that happen? Life is life is unpredictable, right? Um, but but when I was a when I was a child and a teenager, so often, you know, we are we are influenced by individuals in our our lives, right? In our careers, we, right. we look up to mentors. Uh, they are very important. Um, and when I was a kid and teenager. So one of my uncles, he, uh, he actually worked for Volkswagen 
and in those days, uh, you know, he, he traveled around the world um, to represent the company. And uh, when he came back to our little village in Northwest Germany, you know, he brought back, uh, you know, artifacts and, uh, and also maps from, from faraway places like, uh, like Tahiti, right? And I was always laying in the living room on the floor and studying these maps for hours and I can still do that. And then I uh, dreamed about the world and other cultures and other people. And uh, I, yeah, I, I really wanted to become Indiana Jones, you know, um, although I was from that tiny village. Um, and but on a side note, you know, uh, in Indiana Jones, as you know, in the last crusade, right, visited Petra in Jordan. Um, and, and I visited Jordan uh, and Petra three times. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I walked in Indiana Jones' uh, footsteps. So there are a lot of parallels between Indiana Jones <laughs> and Ulrich Kamp. T totally, totally. Uh, I, not, I, not even to mention the good looks. I wished I would look like uh, Harrison Ford, but, you know, um, we're working on it. So I, I then studied geography in Berlin. Um, okay and uh, was concerned with, with urban studies. I was interested in cities and, you know, something strange happened. I, I joined my best friend, who also was a colleague, uh, doing this summer to the Hindu Kush mountains in Pakistan. So that was a, a really interesting trip and I totally fell in love with the mountains and, uh, and its glaciers. And, and then when I came back to Berlin, I actually quit my job um, and uh, found a job at the Technical University in Berlin and uh, carried out my own PhD studies in northern Pakistan. So I went back and worked on um, paleoglaciations, so, so former glaciations um, in, in the Hindu Kush. So when, uh, I think when I count all trips together, so I spent uh, over a year um, in Pakistan. So since then, I'm studying glaciers, still doing it. Okay. No, that's really interesting. I'm always wondering, um, how do people get started with their career? At, at what point do they know, mm -hmm. this is what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about. So this is good to know that this was, that this was an early start that had to do with maps and the fascination of other places. And I think that connects well to um, my next question. And that is um, the impact of climate change on glaciers um, is probably not the same across the world. And you were just mentioning uh, some of your travels. So the interest must be to look at if there are uh, similar developments or if they are different depending on where one is. So are there regions or countries that are more impacted um, than others uh, when we think about uh, climate change and, and glaciers. Yeah, so, so again, the database is huge, 100,000 glaciers, and of course, nature uh, right, is, is a dynamic system and it reacts according to the to regional conditions. So, um, it's interesting, many, many people believe that glaciers are shrinking, right, and receding um, everywhere on the globe, you know, and we heard, hear that in the media sometimes, uh, all glaciers are shrinking. That's almost correct. So probably over 90% of the glaciers worldwide, as far as we know from our analysis, you know, are in recession. Uh, for example, Glacier National Park, right? Uh, next time you go, you can maybe start counting. So, so in the 19th century, Glacier National Park had 150 glaciers. And then when it was created, of course, you know, the name comes from the glaciated landscape and also from the many glaciers. Right. Uh, 2010, only in 2010, we had 37 glaciers left and the newest number from this year is 25. So from 150 glaciers down to 25. And the prediction is that by 2030, there are might be gone, you know, almost gone. So if you want to see a glacier in Glacier National Park, you have to take your kids uh, right now. So what, what about the other 10% of the glaciers? Um, many of them are actually um, advancing. And the, the, the weird 
story is here that they are advancing because of global warming. So, and so th this is why some climate change critics say that, you know, scientists and the media, so this is all confusing. So are glaciers shrinking or are they advancing? And if they are advancing, then look, the climate cannot get war warmer, right? Because the glacier needs cold temperatures. Right. Again, it's not that easy. So nature is more complicated. So for example, in the Karakorum, where I spend a lot of time, right? And analyze glaciers in detail. Um, that's a pretty famous area because um, one of my colleagues from Canada you know, actually came up with the term Karakorum anomaly. In that area, one of the highest mountain ranges on the globe, uh, many of the glaciers are actually advancing. So now we can ask ourselves, so, okay, why is that? Why would some glaciers grow? Um, so the climate is changing, the atmosphere is warming, right? We talked about that one degree in the last 150 years. Right. That, of course, means that more water from the oceans is evaporating into the atmosphere, right? right. So the atmosphere is getting uh, increases in humidity, it's getting moisture, right. right? And we will look at uh, more cloud developments in the future. Well, actually, we already have it. And these warmer oceans and that evaporated water vapor, that, for example, also feeds into hurricanes, right? And in the moment, we see that we have probably more hurricanes, Right. But definitely more intense hurricanes. So they're getting larger and larger. Right. So in a way, the, the oceans feed into that system hurricane. Interesting. So co coming back to the glaciers now. So when this moist air now, you know, crashes into the Karakoro Mountains because of their elevation, you know, the, the moist air has to make it over the mountain. So it's coming from the Indic. Uh, or from the west, from the Mediterranean, and it's loaded with humidity, and it's heavy, and it tries to make it over the mountains. Well, in simple words, it has to get rid of something right. to become lighter, and it simply starts to, in many regions, rain, but in the Karakorum, it starts to snow. So it really starts snowing heavily um, as a result of the warmer oceans, which is really weird, right? And all that additional snow on the glaciers in the Karakorum, you know, then results in that advance. So it's a result of climate change. We have some other cases like uh, the west coast of Norway or New Zealand, you know, where some of the glaciers are advancing. So I think the, the conclusion for, for the non-scientists is, is important that you know, that, uh, that nature is not black and white, right? There's a right. lot of gray uh, zone, and that gray is particularly interesting to, to scientists. Right, right. Right, so to understand the whole picture. Well, thank you for, for helping us um, understand the science behind climate change and the fact that, that but probably some people might think that all glaciers are uh, shrinking, is actually not true and, and how interesting that there are some because of what you just explained are actually uh, through global warming are increasing in size because there's more moisture in the air and therefore there is more snowfall and therefore there is more buildup and some of the glaciers this way in a strange way are actually growing while others somewhere else are shrinking. But Moving away a little bit, Ulrich, from the hard science, so to say, and no pun intended here with heart and ice, but um, looking at how does climate change impact societies and cultures? There must be, when I'm thinking about uh, glaciers and people that have lived near or, or uh, you know, are somehow uh, impacted uh, by their traditions or by their customs um, through this change that is happening. How has this impacted? What have you seen um, as far as societies and their cultures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so climate change has, uh, has multiple impacts on people and um, societies, and these impacts come at, uh, at various scales. Um, so in local communities, also the one that, that I visited, um, 
and, and this is um, interesting um, and, and kind of uh, dangerous. Uh, so glacial recession might cause for some years increased flooding, you know, and uh, because the glaciers are melting and you have more water available and that might lead in some communities in the mountains to flooding for some years. And then later, you know, the glacier, when it really melts back and is very small and is sitting in higher elevations, you know, um, then the, the water uh, actually diminishes suddenly and uh, less water is available, um, for example, for agriculture and other uses. So um, the, the melting glaciers might be sometimes, you know, in, at least for some years, good news for the locals you know, because they uh, are in demand of more water for the agriculture and it's coming from the melting glaciers. Right. And of course, also local and regional authorities. And I experienced that in Mongolia, where now the uh, government in the Altai Mountains, you know, is proposing a couple of new dams. So, and these dams will be, you know, you, you have to fill the reservoir behind the dam, you know, and you use the water for hydropower. Right. You know, we need more and more electricity also in the Altai Mountains. And um, you, you have to fill the reservoir in the Altai, mainly with uh, meltwater from the glaciers. Right. And all the measurements right now show that there is more meltwater because the glaciers are melting. But again, the problem is that at one point, it all really turns around and the glaciers are so small that almost no, no meltwater will coming down the mountain any longer. And, and then you look at uh, droughts, for example. And I had one example in Ladakh, so which is in the Indian Himalayas. Um, when we visited uh, the village, I think over 10 years ago. So there was a, a village that was built on a huge uh, alluvial fan. So it's, it's a landform, it's sitting, it's coming sediment that piled up over thousands uh, of years coming out of the mountains. And um, uh, Ladakh is, is more or less a half desert or, or desert in, in some parts. Okay. So the only way to do agriculture on these alluvial fans that are sitting high above the, the natural rivers, right? Right. Is to, to tap into the meltwater from the glaciers behind the alluvial fan. So the people uh, constructed really beautiful, sophisticated canal systems um, that they sometimes built kilometers deep into the mountains and uh, built them next to the glacier and very simple the meltwater then feeds into the canals and brings the water uh, to the fields uh, next to their village. Um, because the glaciers are melting and there was increased meltwater available the government local government said well let's extend the agricultural fields um, around the city um, or the village, you know, and uh, we can bring in more people, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a bright future. Well, that all went totally wrong and exactly when the glacier melted so much that it was impossible to build these canals deeper into the valley. And even if they would have done it, there would not have been a sufficient amount of gla uh, glacial meltwater available. So the entire project came to a halt and it was, uh, you know, an unsustainable um, um, investment, right? Um, so the, the whole project had to be abandoned. And uh, that's a um, really good example of this uh, maybe wrong understanding of, of how nature works. So first you have more and then suddenly you have less. Right. So again, what we need is scientists, right, who... Uh, who, who educate um, local authorities and, and villagers, right? Right. Now, um, I remember that um, I once served on a master's committee at the University of Montana. It was like 10 years ago or so, and the grad student was like way ahead of his time. He had a particular interest in climate refugees, a term that uh, up to that point I, I never even heard before, which, um, which was so new and he was so, you know, really cutting edge at the time. In your research, have you come across climate change refugee stories that you can share? 
Um, so, so this is a really interesting term, right? Usually we think about refugees when we think about war, right? Right, for political um, reasons more than anything. For political reasons, and we call these uh, forced migrations. Right. Right, and um, so, but only again to make clear, so, so climate change refugees, um, if you want to call them that, uh, you know, migrants that were forced to leave their home area, Right. You no, know, they they always um, existed. Um, so so when I did my my master thesis actually in yeah southern Jordan next to Petra, so I was uh, working in geoarchaeology. So I was part of a of an um, excavation project, um, and uh, a, a Neolithic uh, settlement had been discovered. So ne Neolithicum you know goes back like eight thousand years. So we would call it the uh, the latest Stone Age period, right? Right. So that settlement uh, had been discovered, and then we did research there for some years, and the result uh, showed that um, eight thousand years ago, so um, the climate had changed slightly to more dryness. So that was bad news for the locals <laughs> in those days, right? right? The the beginning also of agriculture, right? But in addition to that you know, um, because the landscape, the vegetation looked a little bit different. The farmers in those days were already so successful that they are, um, that the size of their herds, you know, um, goats and sheep in, in the area increased rapidly and they overexploited um, their environment. And it seems that then uh, all, almost ad hoc, uh, many of the settlements had to be abandoned um, so that was, you know, that's very typical for, for our history as, a, as humans. You know, there was a combination of, of a natural um, event, like right. increased dryness, right. plus, you know, plus, you know, um, in, in this case, you, uh, you know, a, an, an agriculture that was not really adapted to these changes. And right. they, in combination, right, in right. combination, um, led to, you know the idea of you know moving giving up right. your your home um the, the same is true for the dust bowl in the u.s right you right. probably know more about it than, than i do um so that was a combination of several years of droughts and then a failure in farming approaches you know and then three and a half million people in the 30s uh, had to move right? right um so one of the examples of mine is is uh uh, definitely, you, you know, I, I was a professor in Montana, right, at, at the University of Montana for for 12 years, and uh, you remember her. Um, so one of my students, you know, she was actually a climate refugee. She was hit uh, by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Right, right. Which is climate change uh, related. Yes. And she, she packed our, her remaining goods and belongings right and threw it in her car and it came, uh, and it came from the new orleans region didn't she yeah exactly yeah from new orleans and right, right. and she and her husband and and her son you yep. know uh, drove simply north and she told me we didn't know where to stop we had no plan we simply said get out uh, let's go somewhere right and they had experienced several hurricanes right and they were tired of it and they drove north and she told me that they drove and drove and drove into the mountains. And at one point they said, this is beautiful. Let's stop. And it was Missoula. Right. And then she, you know, studied geography um, and, and wrote a wonderful thesis. And um, she is, she would be officially seen as a climate refugee. Right. And, and then nowadays, you know, what we experienced this year and, and also the last years, you know, the, the wildfires in California, you know, we had for the first time in history a wildfire that burned over a million um, acres of, of land. Uh, we've never had that before. So California is burning now every year. And obviously the first people moved out of California into the surrounding states. And uh, obviously many of them to Arizona. Right. And they even had an impact. <laughs> what an interesting story on uh, a recent election. Right. So um, climate refugees, um, we, we will see definitely uh, increasing numbers um, in the future. 
and uh, local governments um, have to deal with it. So, so I think in 2000, last thing in 2012, I have one number in mind from my class. Sure. Um, there were worldwide um, um, 32 million people forced to leave their homes uh, and, and only because of extreme weather events. So that does not even count um, uh, other migration, but the climate change related migration that was in one year over 30 million people. And it's, it's only getting, getting worse because we also have um, population growth. Right. You know, in the year 2050, we will probably have uh, 10 billion people living on spaceship Earth instead of seven and a half. That's right. an increase of two and a half billion people in the next 40 years, uh, 30 years, sorry. Right. So what I'm hearing here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the term climate refugee is not new because mm -hmm. uh, nature has caused people to change their location of where they lived uh, for quite some time. What is new, perhaps, is the acceleration that is human-caused. Is correct. that could, could one say that? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, now, in addition to sustainable cities and urban mobility, what are some of your current challenges in global climate change? And you talked about that a little bit earlier um, when you were talking about how you found your passion uh, uh, as a uh, glacier researcher. And you said that you started out um, uh, when you were young looking at sustainable cities, actually. But, but what are some of the current challenges in uh, global climate change? Um, so I think, um, you know, I remember years ago when I was in Montana and, uh, you know, Al Gore and the IPCC had received the Nobel Prize. Um, right. And uh, one of my colleagues at UM, Dr. Steve Running, was part of that group. And uh, um, he was already well known before and become, became, you know, famous overnight. And he gave that one talk at uh, UM. And he presented for most of the talk about uh, scientific facts, of course, right? right. Um, that, that's his field. And, uh, you know, he talked about uh, also glacial recessions and sea level rise and the increase in the intensity of hurricanes, etc., etc. It was very convincing. And at the very end, you know, he looked at the audience and he said, so when it comes to the science of climate change, so it's an accepted theory nowadays, right? Uh, everybody who would say that climate change doesn't exist would actually say that he, she doesn't accept science, right? So uh, this is a scientific fact. Climate change is happening. So we have data available. Um, you can always debate the fine-tuning of the climate change and of the data. Uh, for example, predictions of um, future developments when it comes to temperature, they range between uh, two and six degrees Celsius until 2100. Two degrees Celsius is already more than what we had in the last 150 years, right? It would be double right. of the one degree. Six degrees Celsius might be the end of uh, uh, the way we, we know how to live today. Um, so, so hopefully that's not happening. But this is what the climate scientists discuss. So the fine tuning, not that climate change is not happening. Um, in, you know, interesting to us is how much will the temperature increase? How many of the glaciers will uh, disappear, um, etc. But then um, Dr. Running, you know, he said, we know the, the scientific facts. And we natural scientists now, we have to hand over, you know, the whole topic of climate change to the social scientists, you know, and much more important now is to focus on, so what will happen to our societies? What will happen to local communities? Right. Like the one in Ladakh that I right. uh, talked about earlier. You know, um, there's a wonderful case from, from Peru that I maybe could talk about. So, um, 
what will happen to these communities? What will happen to entire economies, right? In some countries when um, in some African nations uh, that, that grow coffee as their main crop, you know, when, when the climate change changes and they cannot grow uh, coffee any longer. Right. Um, of, of course, we can come up with hybrid coffee species, right? That are more adapted to droughts and so forth. But we really have to look at, so what the heck do we do, right? And so from the social sciences, then we have to um, conclude what will happen, what can we do? And then at the last step, all the scientists, you know, from all disciplines, we, we can only hand over data to our elected governments and hope that they make the right decisions, right? That's, that's all we can do. But um, so coming back to that question, that's probably the, the big challenge today, okay. that based on the physical facts that we have, um, how huge will be the impact? then we could talk about resiliency, right? So how can we grow communities and society stronger? Right. Uh, what, what can Miami do knowing that the sea level is rising and the beaches are all disappearing? Uh, what do you do as a city? Um, how do we funnel uh, huge amounts of, of money into um, you know, this building resiliency and becoming again sustainable? Let's look into the future just a little bit, will the actions we take today be enough to forestall the direct impacts of climate change or is it too little too late? Mm. Ooh, yeah, that's a challenging question. Um, so, so in 2018, right, two, two years ago, the, the Intergovernmental Committee on Climate Change, the, uh, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, excuse me, the, the IPCC, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a group of the United Nations. You know, uh, they uh, produce the um, climate change reports, right? In right. a specific uh, interval. So in 2018, they published a report that concluded um, that we will reach the, the threshold of one and a half degrees of temperature increase um, by 2030. So that was a big warning. So that's 10 years from, from now. So the IPCC said, if we cannot um, make sure that the temperature increase is definitely uh, not more than another additional 0 0.5 degrees Celsius, right? Because we already have a degree then we are looking at um, impacts that are tremendous, uh, tremendously huge. So entire ecosystems and uh, societies uh, will start to suffer and, and they will change. Look at more floods, uh, even larger wildfires, more droughts, disappearance of glaciers uh, and entire mountain systems. Um, so in a way, the IPCC wanted us to wake up and they told us, look, we are standing as a, as a global um, society and community. We are standing at the cliff and we are looking down. And the question is, uh, what do we want to do now? And what will our leaders do? And um, the main question is, how do we change behavior? You know, so how, how can you and I um, act in a different, different way? And it's, I think it's interesting to see how humans function. Um, so for example, so we are right now, right? We are living a nightmare of a global pandemic. Right. You know? and, and who would have thought only a year ago that, that our generation, you know, at least in the United States, living in the United States or in Europe, right? In, in highly developed industrialized nations, you know, where we are so protected. Who would have known that something like that could have such a huge impact on us, on our personal life. Right. That we will suffer so much pain. So, so here we are now in the pandemic and we understand that things can go wrong uh, super fast. Right. right? And uh, the COVID-19 virus is extremely dangerous. So while scientists uh, globally agreed on the fact that COVID-19 
uh, must be fought immediately, you know, and with all strength that we have as a global community, um, that we have to change lifestyles, like staying home, living in your bubble, wearing a mask and so forth, you know, so that we don't catch the virus. Um, so we learned that even that is difficult for people. Uh, so right. in that small time frame of only, what where are we now, nine, ten months into the pandemic, yep. people have a problem in accepting that scientific fact that this is highly dangerous and we have to fight it. So now when we bring that back to climate change, you know, global warming is known since the 1950s, by the way. You know, there was a first paper right. published and the scientists used the word global warming. There's nothing new to it. That's what is it? Uh, almost 70 years ago. Right. The ozone hole was discovered, you know, in the 1980s. Uh, the Inconvenient Truth movie from Al Gore is from 2006. So we as a society heard and learned about climate change for, for decades. Right. But as, but as humans who cannot even adjust to a pandemic in a couple of months, how can we as a society adjust to climate change that comes at the scale of decades? So for humans, I think that's, very difficult to do. You know, we like to, to live in maybe the past and, and today and then the next weeks and where do we go on vacation next year? But thinking about, you know, how will the year 2015 look like when my son, you know, will, will have his own children. Um, so that's difficult. And um, so I wouldn't say it's too late, right? It's, it's never too late, but we are really at a point where we have to understand that 2030 will be, will be the benchmark. Um, that's the reference. And, and, that, we have is to just, right and that is just a decade away. That's around the corner. Right, right. Now, um, we are talking about the future and how, um, you know, how this will be different um, to future generations, but when we think about us right now, will taking action make our lives better or safer? Just sort of immediately, what could you say about that? Ooh, um, immediately, so that, that's difficult because, um, you know, Again, the, the whole Earth system is a very dynamic system and it's a extremely complex. So someone actually said a couple of years ago, you know, in an interview, we don't even really know how that ecosystem little pond in front of, you know, our, 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 our house, you know, in that, in that uh, public park, how, how that really works. <clears throat> so understanding all the processes that are going on in that pond, um, uh, that's extremely challenging. Right, it's a very complex system. So now we go at a large scale and look at the Earth um, system. Um, the problem is that, you know, the Industrial Revolution dates back, you know, depending on where we go, you know, maybe where it started in, in Britain, 1750. You know, we go back a couple of hundreds of years. Right. And since then, we are emitting <clears throat> greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And they uh, accumulated, right? And uh, so even if we would stop all emissions into the atmosphere today, uh, the system would still have to deal with the greenhouse gases that are there from these hundreds of years um, that we are looking at. And um, so the impacts of, of our greenhouse gas um, emissions in the atmosphere, they will continue. Um, it will if we act today, it will not be better tomorrow. So this isn't how nature works, right? Um, but definitely we, we have to act today so that, um, yeah, you, you and my children, right? And their children will have a better life. Um, now, when, we, yeah. when we talk about this, Ulrich, and I really appreciate um, the, the sense of urgency here, how can the average person help slow down the impact of climate change. People like you and me and the listeners 
to this podcast? What are some examples of what we could do? Well, um, well, becoming green, right? That's one of the, you know, the, the top words in the last decades. Everything has to be green. Right. Um, but you know what is act is actually true. Well, I really appreciated you um, uh, shedding a lot of light on the subject of uh, of climate change and global warming, and giving us lots of examples from your own uh, research, from your own travels, and also demystifying some of this. And as we just did in latter part of this podcast to really sort of bring this back home and to say while these things are uh, happening and they are unfortunate here is actually what we could do to uh, to cause a change and to make things better and so i think this was just a wonderful overview of this entire topic and also a lot of detailed information um, from you as as a scientist that has worked in this field for decades now. I would like to close, Ulrich, with, um, with a question that is more personal. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your passion? What drives you as a person? Not, not as a scientist so much, but what, what is sort of your passion in life? Mm. Oh yeah, that's, oh, that's a good one. Um... Yeah, why, why did I become a scientist, right? Um, so I think when I go back to, to my own um, history, my own story and how I grew up in that tiny little village in Northwest Germany and dreamt uh, you know, about the world, um, and that has to do also with my parents and my family. Um, I think I was always interested um, in, the, in the health of our uh, spaceship Earth, our blue planet. You know, and when I looked at that famous picture uh, from the 60s, you know, the, the blue marble looking from space for the first time at, at Earth, right, like, like an alien, I was, I was very touched when I saw that in school, that picture. And I think I developed that um, passion for yeah, saving the world, right, that was, that was my mission. And, um, and and nowadays, of course, as as uh, as a dad, right? I'm I'm passionate about the future of my of my two boys, and I really want them to have the life that I had because I think I had so far a really awesome life, and I'm very thankful. Um, I want also them to to develop that passion for their environment, and uh, I was uh, yeah interested in protecting nature um, and our livelihoods. And I really believe that that we all have to be, you know, stewards of the world that we live in. And, and here the word sustainability comes to mind, right? So caring um, about our our next uh, generations. So so the reason then why I chose to become a scientist is I, I believe so, is that that passion and the question. So what can I do? And again, I could always vote for the Green Party, but I wanted more. And um, so becoming a scientist and being a scientist, you know, that kind of enabled me to, you know, to present strong arguments that are based on facts and that I hand over to decision makers, um, like to some villagers and the mayor of a small community in the Dakin, India, you know, and that hopefully has a positive impact. So, yeah, I think it's an outdated classic idea, right? And, and I'm over 50 now, I'm getting older, but I, I really care about our, our blue planet, a spaceship Earth uh, that has always driven me. Well, that's, I think, a good passion to have and certainly something that um, is not... Uh, a selfish, a selfish passion, but but something that will benefit, yeah. like you said, your your immediate uh, family, your children, um, to to live in the world and to enjoy uh, the things that we have had uh, the opportunity to enjoy. Well, thank you, Ulrich, for your time 
today for uh, talking to me. And uh, it's been uh, my pleasure to have an expert in the field to shed some light on the big questions and, and on some smaller ones that we also tackled. My guest for the last International Voices this year was Dr. Ulrich Kamp, glaciologist and professor of Earth and Environment, chair of the Environmental Studies Program in the Department of Natural Sciences at the University of Michigan in Dearborn. As always, thank you all for listening. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and the Trail 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and thetrail1033.com. If your interests are in global and intercultural education, programming, cultural and global competence, and international affairs, we hope you continue to listen to International Voices in 2021. Be well, be safe, and have a wonderful holiday season and a great start into the new year.